This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the porncast that assures you that if we're having performance anxiety issues, it's not you. It's it's, it's us. I'm your co-host, Yvette Dontremont. Here's my lovely co-host, who I think is performing just fine, Alice Vaughn. Alice, how are you doing, baby cakes? Considering how long it took us to come up with a show <laughs> intro, and that's the best we can do. That was why I came up with that, because it's we're having performance issues, and I don't know. We could not come up with an intro for the freaking life me? of us. I don't think it's our lovely guest, Jana Vrangalova, who I, I hope I did not screw up her name, because it took us a little a few tries to get it right uh, before we started the show. That was great. That was impressively great. All your Russian learning is paying off. I started learning Russian. This is my my new thing this year. I started learning, and it still looks like hieroglyphics right now. Is it because you want to use Parler? Shh, don't tell anyone. No, it's, I, I, I worked on learning German last year, and now I'm learning Russian. I think I just want to read about World War II in the original text. <laughs> no, <laughs> Good no, luck not with a, that. <laughs> it's not at all. I just enjoy learning languages. Oh, man. Weird side hobby. But Jana, we are so excited to have you on. I mean, I knew we had to have you on from the moment I saw one of your talks. So first off, you're a PhD, New York City-based sexuality and relationship scientist. But I'll never forget, so pre-COVID, I went to one of your talks, and you were discussing, and you have to tell me which tribe this is, but there was a tribe you were talking about that uh, it's a rite of passage for the men to learn how to please women. Can you let us know which tribe is it and do they take applications? <laughs> How do I get, do I bring a, a sacrificial cheesecake to them? I make a really good cheesecake. I'll do what I have to. <laughs> that might work. I'm not sure. So this is something that we know from the anthropological literature. The tribe is called the Mangaya. I forget exactly where they are right now. I think it might be Papua New Guinea or something like that. Don't hold me to it. But the story goes is that when men or boys, sort of teen boys, reach that point in their development where it's time to become men, the rite of passage is that they go to see a local woman. Actually, first, they are, I guess, taught in how to please a woman because in order to be a man, you have to please your woman. In fact, she has to have several orgasms before the man does. And as the rite of passage after they've been learning, they get to see a local woman who's experienced and who shows them and teaches them, and that's how they sort of pass. And apparently in this culture, all women have orgasms. Oh. Non-orgasmic women are not heard of. Oh, uh, I know, oh. right? <laughs> it, if, any, if any of you guys, just for those of you who haven't signed up for our Patreon yet, this episode is available with the video on Patreon. And the look of sadness on my face right now is truly devastating. Like, I'm, I am I get plenty of orgasms in, in my life now. I'm just saying the younger years that could have been spent happier in all of our lives, were this the case at all? I'm just saying Western civilization does not have it all figured out. I know. If you are a Mongolian male, hit us up. <laughs> Tell our men your secrets. I have some bad news, though. Worse news. <sighs> <gasps> is it an extinct civilization? They probably are so, at this point, so westernized if they're still oh. around. Like Some of these accounts go back some 40, 50, 60 years, oh. and I'm not sure to what extent that tribe still exists in its original form. You got our hopes up. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. High. It was Alice. Oh. <laughs> it's not me. This is true. <laughs> I, I was hoping of a utopia of where 
women can actually get off. I'm sorry. But I think we can create that. I think we currently live in a time where something like that is possible. Because we have things like this, podcasts like this. We have the internet. We have information everywhere. I mean, they're trying to censor it as much as possible. But I think now more than ever, we have that opportunity, right, to connect with other people, to learn from other people, and really get to a point where all people can have orgasms. Because there are very few people. Because I, I usually talk about this example in the context of can all women orgasm? Like, why are so many women not orgasming? Is it a physical thing? And so on. And there probably are some people of all genders who have some physical issues that prevent them from orgasming. For the vast majority of folks out there, women in particular, who are not coming or struggling with that, it's purely experiential or lack of the right kind of experience, the right kind of knowledge, the right kind of comfort with their bodies, comfort with their sexualities, shame, guilt, all of those things. And then unskilled partners who also have no idea what to do with, you know, where the clitoris is or what the clitoris is to begin with, or the fact that it's really, really important for orgasm for those who have clitorises. So yeah, there's a lot that we can do, but I think we can do it if we all like got together. In an orgy specifically. <laughs> We just all need to have the sex talk, but better and more explicitly and hopefully with hands-on demonstrations. <laughs> I, I actually think hands-on demonstrations or even just like demonstrations, because very often people try to teach sex ed without the visuals. And it's kind of hard to learn without the visuals. So I do think we have a long way to go in creating the kind of sex ed that can really teach people. My business partner, Kenneth Play, I love the way he teaches sex ed. And I really think that's how sex ed should be taught with explicit video. So it qualifies as porn technically, but it's instructional, educational porn, if you will. I hate calling it porn, but it's very explicit and he shows everything. He explains everything. He teaches all of the different pieces of it, both the technical side and kind of the experiential and the emotional side that needs to be created between the partners. I wish that something like that was more accessible to more people. I mean, it is. He has online courses that people can buy, but like, I think everyone should have that. I agree. I mean, there's so many times that people refer to porn as, oh, is this what I'm supposed to do? And mm -hmm. as we now many times have spoken to people within the industry, no, don't do pornolingus. <laughs> They're like, this is not what I do when I'm at home. You should not do this when you're at home. Mm -hmm. This looks good on camera, does not usually feel good for the people involved. But I'm guessing the quote porn that's used uh, educationally is not the same as what we're getting for gonzo porn on Pornhub. It's, I'm going to guess it's a little bit more educational. In, I, don't, I don't know how one makes educational porn, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to guess with a little bit less hair pulling and, and spitting maybe. <laughs> Unless it's that kind of education is on the yes. kinky side, right? <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah. I was thinking about like education for like sex ed. Who are we talking about these sex ed courses for? That's the question. Right. Exactly. Depends on who we're talking about this. Yeah. What I'm talking about is adult sex ed because mm. adults definitely need sex ed. Very true. It would look a little different for the younger folks for sure. And as far as sex ed goes, I know that you've been doing some courses and talks lately. Like you have actually two talks that I know you mentioned to me, one as far as cuckolding goes and another regarding intentional celibacy. <laughs> I kind of want to talk about a little bit about both. So I decided to make the cuckolding one a little broader to make it about threesomes 
and more sums and kind oh of group play. The reason being, I don't think people understand how common cuckolding specifically is. People think it's like this weird fetish. It actually isn't. It's very common. And it's like, it it's, it's weird that it's become a thing in pop culture right now that people are calling people cucks because I don't think it is what people think it is. So I'm just, I'm dying to hear hear more from you on this. Yeah, we can we can definitely talk about cuckolding when you talk about celibacy. I've been a professor of human sexuality for six, seven years at this point at NYU. And I recently created this kind of format of conversation, online group conversations between people from literally all over the world who come into the Zoom room. And I facilitate a conversation that has a little bit of science, that has a, a lot of audience participation, people share their experiences, and it's always focused on a specific topic. It creates this very unique environment where people can learn new information about the topic where people can feel less alone, can feel represented because there are other people in the room being in the same room kind of at the table with all of these different perspectives on the same topic is quite fascinating. I've learned a lot and we've been doing different topics. So the one that's coming up, yeah, is threesomes and then intentional celibacy. What's interesting is when you talk to people all around the world when it comes to sex and sexuality, you'll learn different things. Like I have a friend who moved to the U.S. from Iraq, and he was telling me, God, years ago that when he was doing a religious pilgrimage, that there would be these stops along the road where you can essentially sign an hour or two hour or a day long marriage certificate and then, you know, have sex with someone because you're married to them, and then uh, the marriage cert certificate expires, which I found fascinating of, wait, why don't we just do this in general? Like, 10-year marriage certificate. This expires, and uh, do you want to be together? No, don't worry. It's, it's coming on up. You can decide to re-up, or you can, like, take a few days off. Mm -hmm. You could be like, you know, maybe I need a week off from this. I just, I need to go on walkabout. I need to, I need to just think about a few things. I think people should take breaks from their relationships and their marriages all the time. I think people should take weekends off, at times not every weekend, but they should take a weekend off here and there. They should take a week off here and there. They should, I think, sometimes take a month off here and there. I, and I don't think it has to be like, okay, we're breaking up for that month or week or weekend, but just taking some time and space away from yeah. each other. And some people need this distance more than other people, but I think for a lot of people, it's a, it's a beneficial thing to incorporate into their relationships. Being stuck at home right now, I'm, I'm realizing part of my job is normally traveling and giving talks. Missing each other is helpful for my relationship. Not going to lie. Right? Uh, it's, it's partially that I'm energized when I come back from, you know, from a trip, but it's like, man, there's something to be said for having that, you know, time alone sometimes. I think it's really important. Just like we need other humans and to connect with them and to have that that closeness and romance in the case of romantic partners, we also need our time alone. So it's important to find that balance. Yeah. So I'm curious regarding intentional celibacy. I'd love to expand on that a little bit more because it's something that <laughs> seems to be the opposite of a thing that's that's been discussed a lot lately, the, the, the yeah. involuntaries. I mean, really, you hear that kind of in two different scenarios, at least in the mainstream, which is No Nut November or you hear it with priests. Mm -hmm. I can't think of another situation in which someone wants to be intentionally celibate. I'm just genuinely curious, like, what are the types of people that want to do it? What's interesting about it? What motivates them to be intentionally celibate? 
Well, I would love to hear the answers to those questions too, which is exactly <gasps> why I want to have that talk because there's not a lot of research on that in the academic literature. And I want to talk about that because I just finished the six month celibacy. It ended on January 1st, basically on December 31st. Wait, 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 wait. Do you count masturbation as part of celibacy? I included masturbation. So it was celibacy from partnered sex, gotcha. I guess. I was about to say, whew, like, girl, don't, <laughs> don't, don't tell me. Oh. Actually, the, pretty much the only way I used masturbation during that time was to put myself to sleep because what? I've been struggling lately with insomnia. And so that's one of the more reliable, it's not perfectly reliable, but it's somewhat reliable tool for putting me to sleep. So pretty much that's the only way, only reason I kept it in. If I didn't need it for that, I would have gotten rid of masturbation too for those six months. But for me, primarily, it was about taking a break from sexual romantic energy with other people and seeing what takes up the space when that's not around and how I feel about it, how much I want it, how often I desire sex. Is it hard? Is it not hard? Because my personal history is one that has been filled, just like packed, jam-packed with sex and sexual partners and lots of different... Please brag. <laughs> no, it's. I've been very intentionally focused on having sex with as many people as possible, in as many contexts as possible, in as many variations as possible. Like That has been since I started having sex, and that was a long time ago when I was very young. And I've kept that up for almost 30 years. And so this year, it was actually interesting. I had a very interesting year. Two months before Corona happened, so about two months before Alice and I met at that very strange event that... that uh, You're tormenting me from the... Like, it's, <laughs> y- y'all don't know, for 10 minutes before the episode started, uh, Jana and I became <laughs> be- new best friends, and they, they're still tormenting me with stories of this very strange party that I'm only going to find out after this episode is over, <laughs> so I'm dying here. Yeah, it's a, it's a secret thing. But <laughs> no, but uh, a couple months before Corona started, I went into a self-imposed quarantine. Basically, I decided I needed a break from life. I needed a break from all of the professional projects that I was involved with, which were many. And then I needed a break from all the personal stuff that was going on in my life. I had so many friends and lovers and travel and parties and, you know, so much going on all the time. And I decided I needed to reflect and take a break from it all. That turned into a very experimental year on many, many levels. The first experiment was monogamy because I had just met someone like a month or two before I started the sabbatical who was not comfortable with non-monogamy and I've been very non-monogamous my entire life, but he couldn't really deal with it. I really wanted to be with him. I also was during in this time when I was like, if I'm taking a break from everything I've been doing so far, then maybe I should take a break from all the crazy sex I've been having so far too. So I took a break. I was monogamous for the first time successfully for six, seven months. And then when we broke up, I was like, take it to the next level, Jana. Let's see if you can go celibate. So that was the next challenge. And uh, and I completed it successfully. Now the next challenge is how do I want to bring back sexuality into my life and what is that going to look like? Because I learned, oh my God, I learned so much. 
I think there are a lot of other people who could also benefit from it. So I'm kind of curious. I'm curious how people think about it. I'm curious if people are curious about it. I'm curious if other people have done it and then what came out of it. So that's why we're we're having that conversation next month. <laughs> I'm curious how much freer your social calendar became if you learned that much about yourself. Oh, my God. It's been interesting. You should come. In multiple ways. (laughs) Yeah. We'll work on that. (laughs) So you speak a lot about consensual non-monogamy because, I mean, you've been doing it for so many years that you've basically become sort of an expert on it. So I guess for a number of individuals... It feels like as someone who has probably approached relationships mostly from the monogamous standpoint of, all right, we're dating now. You're not seeing people. I'm not seeing people. How does someone, let's start with, approach the idea of consensual non-monogamy when you're starting dating? And then we should probably talk about how does one approach it if you want to potentially open it up in a relationship? Yeah, those are some of the most common questions. (laughs) And there are so many ways to approach it. It's also one of the most difficult questions to answer because there's so many different individual situations and dynamics, both when you're single and dating and and then even more so when you're in a relationship. Like, what kinds of conversations have you had about that before? Like, what do you know about your partner? I always say there's a worst way to do it. Just dump it on them with no warning after you've gotten married with no discussion beforehand. (laughs) I've seen that happen to friends before. And it's like, oh, you're probably under duress. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people don't realize that that's what they want beforehand. They only realize it afterwards, which is why I really think it's important for people to think through that decision instead of just blindly going for the, well, the monogamy is sort of the way that relationships just go think about whether that's really what you want to be doing long-term. And if that's something you think you can do for a little bit, but then you're going to need some variety or novelty on the side, then it's important to communicate that with a partner. I do say to people, when if you think there is any chance that at some point in a long-term relationship, you will want to have other partners in some way, shape, or form, discuss that before things get too serious with this person. And that can be tricky because very often people are not ready to admit. They're not ready to acknowledge. That's something that they might want as well. You know, you start that conversation and the other person can be, well, you're not the right person for me because I want monogamy. Even though you ask that same person five years down the line, they're going to be cheating on their partner. Deep in their hearts, they want non-monogamy, but they also don't want the baggage that comes with it. They don't want to do the heavy lifting that comes with dealing with their own heads, with the jealousy that comes with it, torturing themselves over what their partner's doing. Oh my God, do they care about somebody else? Well, they care about, yeah, they do. That's fine. That's part of it. Uh, You're going to do the same thing. And it's because it's the thing you want. And you asked for for it. But like the worst is that you know, just statistically, we know what ends up happening with a lot of these relationships where it's kind of wanted and people pull back from it. Someone ends up cheating. Mm-hmm. But it's uh it's hard because, you know, in order to go into an open relationship, both people have to really want it. <laughs> Otherwise, there's, you know, there's a lever of trust that goes away. Yeah, people have to want it, people have to be open to it. Different people are built 
differently. And so there really are differences in how much we want monogamy versus non-monogamy. This is a personality trait in a way that exists on a spectrum, just like anything else exists on a spectrum. Some of us are really monogamous and would be very happy in long-term monogamy. Some of us are very, very not monogamous and would be absolutely miserable in monogamy. Like that would be me. I'm on the end of the spectrum, right? You're like, I tried it. (laughs) And it was totally fine for six months, eight months, however long that went on for. I know that that would not be a long-term solution for me. And it was the reason, one of the big reasons that we were not right for each other long-term. But it's important to date your own species, as Reed Mihalko says. He's a... (laughs) Yes. Yep. People often, they try to date their own species in other ways. Like they'll think about... I don't know where people are from or their their socioeconomic status or like those kinds of things. They'll try to find someone who's within their species, if you want to call it. But they don't think about monogamy versus non-monogamy, you know, how sexual or even just how sexual you are. I see so many people who end up in relationships where they are super highly sexual and their partner is super not highly sexual at all, not interested. People discount how important sex is in a relationship and then people break up over sex all the time. Yep. Don't discount your sexuality. Don't discount your sexuality. But we live in a world that says, well, you know, if everything else is fine, then sex doesn't matter that much. No, you have friends for that. You That <laughs> guy can be your friend. You have one, if you, you have one relationship where you're having sex if you're monogamous and that's the person who should have a similar sex, a similar sex drive to yours. Like they got to line up about 80% of the time. Yep, that would be the ideal. So I, I encourage people to think about those things. You know, how important is sex to you? How sexual are you? Is your partner on the same page about that? And then how important is lifelong monogamy versus complete, like poly, open, whatever? But the reality actually is most people are somewhere in the middle. Most people don't want fully open relationships. Like that's the extreme end of the spectrum, the crazy poly or swinging orgies every weekend kind of thing. That's not what most people actually want in terms of what their personality says and where their need for novelty lies. It's more in the middle. So I think that for the vast majority of humans, actually, some like monogamish version, as Dan Savage calls it, yep. or even a don't ask, don't tell where every now and then something happens, but you don't share it with your partner because sharing it is where the jealousy piece comes in. And for a lot of people, that's really difficult to deal with. So there are personality differences in some of these regards. Yeah. Like for some people are like, no fucking way. I would never be able to do it. Don't ask, don't tell. Like I have to know. And they have very good reasons for wanting to know. And then yeah. there are some people who are like, you know what? No, it's okay. I actually don't want to know. Here's a question. As you ladies are scientists, jealousy, more nature or nurture? Oh, I wonder what Psy Babe has to say about that. I'll tell you my my take. I am not a psychologist. Uh, This is not, I've learned as a scientist, don't speak on something that you don't know about. So I, I do not know. It feels like something that's nature, though. That's just, that's my gut. But I've learned that my gut is not my brain. So... <laughs> 
it's so interesting. Some people have the, the gut reaction that it's nature, and then some people have the opposite gut reaction. Or very often in poly circles, in these like open relationship circles, they'll tell you, no, it's all socialization. Like that's bullshit because I know <laughs> jealousy is a problem with my poly. Like, and I, I've run in poly circles. I've had like felt life used to be my little playground for a long time. Mm. Like jealousy is often a problem that people have to work through in these when they're first getting oh, into sure. it, even though they're like, even if they're like committed poly people. People, there are issues like this. And it's just, you know, a lot of it breaks down to communication. But, and I'm not saying that that proves its nature. I'm saying, I'm saying their argument that it's not natural is bunk. <laughs> so they certainly admit that a lot of poly people experience jealousy as they do. But a lot of the time you hear the argument that it's mostly socialized. We've been taught to be possessive and have these jealous reactions and whatnot. And whenever I get this question, my answer is always it's both. With human sexuality and psychology more generally, it's always a little bit of both. There is no doubt an evolutionary basis for jealousy. And it's not even just romantic jealousy. Jealousy as a mechanism is something that was evolutionarily beneficial to the human species from when you're a baby and you want the attention of your parents. Yep. And you don't want other babies or other people to have your parents' attention to when you're an adult and your primary attachment figure becomes your romantic partner, the fear of losing or the threat, the potential threat of losing yeah. your romantic attachment figure is realistically scary. And that's a survival mechanism because humans are a social species. We need other people in order to survive I have a question and here's just, just an observation based on like evolution is supposed to give us things that help us live, right? And stay alive. Why does it make us act so insane in ways that like push people away? Like I just, I feel that was an evolutionary quirk that, that backfired. Well, it's always with these things that trait, again, exists in a spectrum. And then some people end up in the pathologically high levels yeah. of jealousy, which are not evolutionarily beneficial. It's it certainly jealousy is... One of the main reasons, for example, for spousal homicide and relationship-based domestic violence and battery. And so it certainly has a very, very dark side. But the basic mechanism of feeling distress, and so this is also where the cultural piece comes in, is what's appropriate reaction to the distress. So the jealousy cycle, I think of it as a jealousy cycle. We have a distress reaction, an emotional reaction that says, holy fuck, I don't like this. I'm upset. I'm not happy, right? When you feel that there might be a threat of losing your partner. Mm. And that, to great extent, is evolutionarily based. Now, what are the triggers that are telling you, oh, I might be losing my partner? There's a lot of socialization that comes into that. Like, at what level do you start to feel that? Is your partner talking to someone else a potential trigger? Is your partner flirting with someone else? Is your partner being friends with their ex? Is your partner hosting a porn podcast? Exactly. Yeah. So those things are can, to a great extent, socialized. And then what's the appropriate reaction to that emotional distress that you're experiencing? Is it appropriate to do something violent? Or is it appropriate to put up with it and not say anything? As many people, especially women across many cultures, when their husbands have been cheating, the culturally appropriate response is to not say or do anything, kind of just go along. Or do you talk about it? Or, you know, how we deal with that. Or as in poly circles, you sort of 
deal with it, you talk about it, you process it, you learn from it, you figure out, okay, what are the triggers? What do we do about these triggers? Does Infinite this... processing in polycircles. There is a lot processing. of processing. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I tell people, one of the, if you want an open, open relationship, like where it's not don't ask, don't tell, where you tell your partner who's doing what, you better be ready for a lot of processing a lot of communication so know. many feelings mm-hmm. it's not just your feelings about it's it's your feelings about the other relationship it's your feelings in that really it's like and you got to listen to your partner's feelings about their relationship because you're their support system for their relationship with their other par- oh yeah mm-hmm. things get Oof. shit gets heavy which is why that's not for everyone not everybody wants that which is why I, t- I say to people yes for some people don't ask don't tell is better because you don't have to do any of that processing it gets heavy how does someone even approach their partner for a don't ask, don't tell. (laughs) That's the challenging part. But no, so that's kind of still the conversation of like, how do you bring it up? And I think there are a lot of different ways of bringing it up early on where you kind of have a conversation around what your partner feels. How about eight years in? I'm kidding, honey, please can edit that out. (laughs) Oh, no, I secretly have been recording and I'm giving that to Michael later. <laughs> but no, no, I mean, a lot of people do that later on because, as I said, a lot of people don't know, don't realize that they might want something. Often we don't realize. Often when we fall in love initially with someone and they're in love with us and that's good, that infatuation, yeah. that first stage of love is so intoxicating, is so fulfilling oh, yeah. that you don't really think about anybody else. And you think this is going to last forever. I'm going to feel like this forever. I'm never going to want someone someone else. Yes, of course, we're going to be monogamous. But then infatuation usually wanes from that super high level down to some more manageable levels and sometimes disappears altogether. But in successful long-term relationships, it usually stays at some non-zero level. But within a year, a year and a half, two a lot of people get to the point of like, oh, I do see other people. Oh, yeah, there are some hot people around, you know? Yeah, so there are a lot of people who come to the realization that they might be interested in opening up later in a relationship. I, I think there are a lot of different ways to bring that up, sort of asking your partner about their interest in that. You can bring up a podcast that you listened to or a book that you read or an article that you read or a show that you watched or your friend's in Brooklyn who are poly or if you're listening to this episode right now and you're struggling with how to bring this up with your partner, just be like, Hey, the science lady says it's okay. And normal, but two science ladies say it's okay and normal to have open relationships. And why don't we chat about that? So just, just play this part right now to your partner and look them deep in the eye and say, I love you. And I want to talk about this. Just play this part and and turn your phone <laughs> off right now and and cut. Go have the conversation yeah. and then come back. I and we're back now that you've gone and had your your chat. Hope it went well. And if not, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> I hope I didn't break up your marriage relationship. Whatever you're doing, anyways. I think it's very important. What you said, I love you. That piece is very important yep. in these long term relationships. The reassurance. The greatest fear that the partner will have is you don't love me anymore or you don't want to be with me anymore. This is just like a way out for you. And so it's very important to reassure your partner that that's not what this is about and kind of explain what it might be about and, you know, about some fantasies or something. I think fantasies are a great way to introduce 
the idea of non-monogamy in some way. Ask your partner about fantasies. One, I think a good way to do it with long-term partners and even, even with new potential partners is to ask them about their fantasies. Yes. And you can encourage them, right, to be honest and, well, and how about this? And how about a threesome? And how about a fling here and there? And it all depends on how you react. So you kind of model first the behavior for them that you would expect them to kind of return back to you by not, if they say that they are having some threesome fantasies, instead of you reacting all jealous, right, if you're all supportive, and like curious and excited and be like, oh, tell me more, tell me more kind of thing. And a good way to segue here, if they have a fantasy that's something that you're just not fucking into at all, be like, you know, there's a way we could make this happen. You could hook up with another girl, you know, or you could hook up with Who's another guy. It? Yeah, That's another reason I think why we seek out another partner is there's a thing you want to do that your partner's just like, nah, it's a hard no. It's a red for me. And, mm-hmm. you know, those are reasons to talk about it. Just mm-hmm. you're in that long-term relationship. You're married. You're, you're with them for a long time. Who else are you going to tell all the weird shit that really gets you <laughs> off to? Mm-hmm. People are into different things. And also, that's not to say you don't like having sex with your partner anymore. Hell, having sex with other people would definitely make you also appreciate your partner. Because if you like having sex with them and then you have bad sex, guess what? <laughs> You're going to be really excited oh my to God. fuck them again. I've occasionally seen porn that's made me appreciate my husband more. <laughs> But actually, a lot of people who do have open relationships talk about how novelty and kind of excitement of somebody else often translates into better and more exciting sex with their long-term partners. And they often will have some of like the best sex they've had with each other in a long time after one of them or both of them have gone and played with other people. Because a lot of the time, that desire and passion depends on novelty and on the mystery, the adventure, the risk that these new kinds of experiences can bring. But they have that new pheromone energy just mm-hmm. bursting at each other. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it can go in a, a lot of different ways. But yeah, that was that was a great suggestion. If something your partner's not in, you, you offer to Segway. them to go, mm-hmm. no, that's, that's, that's really good. And for people who are starting out, what I would suggest is very often people don't necessarily want to open up right away, but I would kind of have that conversation for the future. Like, how do you think about these things for the future? Is that something you would ever consider? Is it something that you really want? Is it something that would be a total deal breaker? Like, know at least what you're signing up for. And even if, let's say your partner says, no, that's a deal breaker for me, then you at least have a more informed decision that you're going to make, like, do I really want to sign up for a complete monogamy where they'll never be okay with opening up? Or is this something where the partner says, well, I'm not interested in that right now, but if this is all going well and we're solid and happy and all that five years down the line or something like that, we might open up. So like, have an I think it's important to know where you stand and where your partner stands on that before you really sign the papers and make the babies and buy the houses and all of those things. And one thing we encourage people to do if they're not sure what they're, if you ask your partner, what do you fantasize about? What, what do you, what? And they're like, I don't know the sex work. Watch some porn together. We mm-hmm. always, we, we can recommend quite a few. And I found there are things in porn that I like watching in porn. I would never do in real life. And that's a good thing to discuss with your partner too. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And people are into different things. Like maybe watching, you know, you're into, and then, you know, in real life, you're not. And maybe you are into in real life, but you just haven't tried it. So for example, ball busting. Some people just cringed when I say that. Some people got really excited. Um, multiple partners, filling multiple holes, all the holes. All the holes. I love watching it in porn, and I'm a little scared of it. Like, give me porn where it's illegal in at least 17 states to put that many dicks in that few holes. And I'm thrilled. Mostly Texas. Yeah, exactly. 17 counties counts. But it's legal in Mississippi. Uh, (laughs) But I I look at that and go, I think I would be completely overwhelmed. Like, I think my pussy would feel great, but I would be terrified. It is fun. You should give it a shot. Eventually, I just need to find the right drug, I think. Like I, I, just, I can provide some recommendations. Ecstasy is probably the answer. Like the, the, it's, I, <laughs> yeah. you can't come on ecstasy. Coming on ecstasy is really hard. Oh no! I did the one time I did ecstasy. It was good time. Yeah, sex can be really good on ecstasy, but a lot of people report struggling with orgasm. Mm-hmm. It feels like you are getting to the like that edge, oh. and you can't get past that. It, so it feels like here it is, here it is. I'm gonna come and going come, going come, and then it just never happens, never happens, never happens. So you get frustrated. Oh. Yeah, that's what a lot of people report. But. Here's a question: As someone who <clears throat> may or may not own some ecstasy at the moment, <laughs> how many hours should you give yourself if you're gonna use it? At least six. Six? Okay. I would say three or four. Six. Damn. I took a, shall I say, a heroic dose. I threw up. Like, I, I took more than oh, I should have. Oh, that can happen. Yeah. First time I'd ever done it. It was the first time I'd done a hallucinogen, period, uh, or anything other than pot. But yeah, just uh, I had no problems with all of the above. Ecstasy is a good drug. So just say yes, kids. Just say yes. Zana, uh, when I saw you speak in person many a moon ago, you had charts. What are some interesting charts or studies or stats you've seen lately? Because I like numbers. I love numbers too. I was actually just looking at some numbers for the upcoming threesomes talk. And there is this nationally representative or study based on a nationally representative sample of Americans that asked people whether they've had a threesome in their life and whether they find threesomes appealing. What percentage of Americans do you think have had a threesome? Give me a guess. Oh, I'm hmm. 12%. I'm going to go with 20 10% of women report having had a threesome. 10? 10. So one in 10. Okay. One in 10. Huh. And 18% of men. Someone's lying. <laughs> Unless these are all gay male threesomes only. Okay, wait, no. Gay men have definitely had more of them. I'm just, it's. Yes. I don't know if there are enough gay men to make up that 8% difference True. between no. men and women. Not sure. Does that 10% of women have all the threesomes? <laughs> like Maybe. I mean, I, I probably was, you know, the, the woman in one of those threesomes for oh, yeah. the half of the 18%. I've definitely busted a few women's threesome cherry. Like that's in my single life. It was my calling. It was your calling. Yeah. yeah. I've loved busting people's cher- threesome cherries. Oh, yeah. And pegging cherries. That has been my other favorite Ooh. cherry to pop. Do you have any pegging stats? I don't. There's not a lot. Like this study that I'm talking about, they asked people about 50 different activities, whether they've done them and whether they found them appealing. And they did not ask about pegging. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Even when they asked about anal sex, the men were only asked about insertive anal sex. They were never asked about receptive anal sex if they were interested in it. I'm like, that is not okay. 
Here's how we know it's still taboo. They didn't ask about it. Yeah. Among 50 different behaviors, they did not ask about that. What's like the most taboo one they asked about then? Oh, God, I don't know. They're... By your subjective measure. They, there were a bunch of different ones. So I don't know how they picked it or not picked oh, it. But what percentage of men and women do you find threesomes appealing? Ooh. Appealing. Okay, so yes. these aren't people That's who've done it, but they're... doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. This is They, they asked everyone, oh, God. do you find... Um, Threesomes appealing. 35% women, 45% men. I'm going to go okay. same with women, but I'm going to go higher with men. I'm going to go 65% men at least. I think there's something, I don't want to say wrong, different about America. I don't, I don't know. Are we that puritanical? <laughs> like, I lived in Europe yes. for a year and maybe I just got used to what happened. Europe is a little different. I know that was my expectation. That's exactly what my expectation was. It was at least a third of women and probably like two-thirds of men. Yeah. In this national representative sample, 11% of women found <gasps> threesomes appealing. 11. Shut you the lying front door. bitches. You lying bitches, all of you. I <laughs> fucked at least 11% of the women in this country. <laughs> Fuck all of you. Oh, how Stop. dare you? How could you possibly? No. No. How dare Oh. I'm disappointed. American women, stay away from no. me. 34% of men. Whoa. No. Oh, mm -hmm. oh. I, I think I'm more disappointed in the men. At least we're supposed <laughs> to be frigid bitches. Guys, <laughs> come on. I, oh. I was blown away when I saw these numbers, too. Because especially when you live in the, the more sex-positive community and world oh in New God. York City... It seems like everyone's having sex with everyone. Everyone's having sex parties and group sex and whatnot. Right. And then you read something like this and you're like, what the, f what? It makes us realize that we kind of live in bubbles too. Like we quote live in bubbles, but also people's genitals are the same everywhere. People's sex drivers are the same everywhere. People are lying liars who lie. <laughs> Uh, and they lie to surveys because they're like, you know, Jesus could see me, you know, Jesus saw me say that I like two ladies at once. I can't do that. Like, I'm just, I'm just saying people are lying even on a survey. You think they're lying? For the number of women that I know enjoy double penetration porn. No, fuck you women. It's yeah. more than 11%. It's more. And for the number of women who I know secretly like boobs and are like, yeah, I'd fuck a girl if it was right. Yeah. You would have a threesome and you know it. It would just mm -hmm. it would just have to be the right threesome. I'm just saying. Just give in to pleasure. The number of women that follow other female porn stars and are straight or bi, it's like, no, 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 no. There's <laughs> definitely more than 11%. Yeah. I reject, I, I reject, reject this reality and substitute real reality. This is, these are alternative facts. I'm sorry. This is Fake an alternative news. fact. This is, I, no. <laughs> Like, I get... Oh, this is why we need to invest more in science. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm all for it. Yep. I'm so disappointed. At, Americans, be hornier. What I were know. the European numbers? Did you know? I don't know. We don't Shit. have something similar for you. Alice, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe that should be our campaign for the next four years. Like, by the time y'all are listening to this, Joe Biden is president and already the far left is complaining about him not doing enough. Don't worry. <laughs> and I just, maybe that should be our, our charge for the next four years. Make America horny again. Hornier again. Yes. Maha. <gasps> Maha. Oh my God. Can we have Maha? Maha. 
Yes. I would love that. I would the love art to of make coming. America horny again. Finally, I can wear a red hat again. <laughs> I think the stench on that one's going to, it's a little hard to get out. We could make have blue hats with Maha. Fine. <laughs> I want to reclaim it, though. Let's compromise a purple hat. Fair. I think that works because, you know. That's the color of throbbing members. I'm all for it. Yes. <laughs> well, how about this? We sell all three types and let the public decide. Horniness is for everyone. Yeah, we, sh- we shouldn't discriminate against the different colors when it comes to horniness. Yeah. You can have a Make America Horny Again hat in any color any you color. want. There you go. Yeah. You can have a Don't Tread on Me one. <laughs> you can have a green party. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be asking people that tomorrow if they've had a threesome, if they find threesomes appealing. So I'm very curious how my audience will compare in comparison to the American population. Well, obviously, it's going to be a lot higher just because of the nature of the types of people that follow you. Of course, of course. And there are probably going to be a few people that are in there going, I don't like this, but I want to see what the science lady has to say. <laughs> like, you know, some a couple of very judgmental old farts, but I, I want to come just to watch the judgmental old farts. I honestly hope they come. They So far, we haven't had judgmental farts very much coming into nice. the room. Yeah, be it's been, there have been Remarkably respectful conversations, remarkably kind of insightful and thoughtful, and even for difficult topics. Last time we discussed the gray area of consent, which is a heavy topic, and it's very triggering for different people. There are a lot of different experiences with it. Even there, it was very welcoming, very understanding, kind of holding space for the different kinds of perspectives. So... I'm waiting for the day that the judgmental farts arrive and see how we deal with them in that space. Discussing the gray area of consent, can you give us an example for our audience? Are we talking about, for example, if hypothetically someone, one person is completely inebriated and the other person isn't? Is that an example? Well, when one person is completely inebriated, that would probably fall more into the... Non-consensual. The non-consensual. I, I call that the red zone. So I think of consent as, as existing on a spectrum where yeah. the green is sort of this very clear, enthusiastic, sober consent between people that are on a similar level of having their all their faculties to be able to make that decision. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the red zone where you have very clear cut cases of assault when one person is either completely incapacitated or they're very clearly stating no in yeah. in, in very clear ways and the other person still pushes through that. But the gray zone in between is when things are sort of uncertain. Very often we feel ambivalent or unsure about whether we want the sex or to what extent we want it or we want it for some reasons but not for others. And we act in ways that are, we send signals that can be kind of ambiguous that are not super clear. For some people, that might mean there was no verbal explicit consent. It was more non-verbally negotiated. Sometimes there might be some amount of alcohol or other substances involved, but not to the point of someone being passed out. It could mean different kind of negotiations that were happening that... It can often be people just not saying no, even though they're internally feeling kind of like, no, but they're not saying no, they're going along with it. 
Oh, so when you in Ziz Ansari it. Yeah, for, for example. Very few people will understand that reference. I feel like that one was, was a big enough news story. And it's arguable. Again, it's a spectrum. So you can think of some people were suggesting, well, maybe between the gray and the red, there's like an orange zone where it's gray, but it is more toward the red. Where like yeah. there have been some signs that many people could read as no, and yet the person didn't stop. And then on the other side, you could have more on the the green, gray end of the spectrum. So uh, yeah, I think it's a spectrum. And, and I think it's important for us to think about and talk about how these experiences play out. Are they positive? Are they negative? Because sometimes they're positive. They end up positive. Like sometimes you're not sure. You give it a shot. You go ahead and ends up being a great experience. And that's what the people were sharing in the room, that sometimes these have been pretty traumatic experiences. Other times they've been actually quite amazing experiences. Oftentimes people learn a lot from finding themselves in the gray zone so that they up their own consent practices going forward, know more about themselves, know more about their partners. I think as a society, we need to engage more with those experiences. Mm, I have a friend and I actually should ask him regarding like consent because he has face aphasia where he just oh. can't recognize faces at all. Can he read expressions? Like Yeah, no, he can't at all. Wow. Mm-hmm. So when I used to actually hang out with him, he would always know it was me because I was always wearing a blazer. Right. <laughs> Interesting. The, yeah. The blazer. Yeah. yeah. For people like that, consent can be a very tricky thing to navigate. We had yeah. last time in the room, a couple of people on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum, and they talked about how difficult it can be both for people to read them and for them to read, especially when it comes to nonverbal signs. And then, of course, there are some of us like myself who love nonverbal communication and negotiating things non-verbally like and and then other people really love verbal so there are a lot of different preferences and and all that but yeah I invite people to come to to uncensored and engage with these conversations with me we do them on a weekly basis and each time is a different topic and people can also listen to the recordings afterwards they can buy the recordings afterwards nice and we'll link to that in the the show notes yeah that would be great I like to do uh, this thing in the bedroom with my spouse where scale of one to five, I find it super useful where how horny are you? One, you're not horny at all. Five, yeah, raring to go. Three, could go either way. Let's start, see what happens. Yeah, that's a good one. Something about that, a lot of people often think that the only time that you should be having sex in these long-term relationships is if you're both a five, like you're both oh, super no. horny. And so is, is there a cutoff point? Like if you're a two, you don't go there. Or if you're a three, you don't go there. Or I mean, it's definitely more prominent if, I mean, if he's, let's say, a three, two, and I'm a four, five, and I start and sometimes then he'll, you know, be, you know, in the beginning, then he's like, mm, not really. And then he will be really interested. And then there's times where, you know, I'll be a five and he'll be a one and I'll know, all right, got to go into the shower with the Hitachi. <laughs> right, right. It's just one of those days, but it's better to be able to communicate and express that through some sort of sliding scale as opposed to not knowing and not knowing how to express that. Right, because you you probably will take a slightly different route if they say they're a two versus if they're also a five. And so it's very useful information to have. Exactly. And then you need to know that that also preps you for how much lube you need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you are a five, both of you get the gallon <laughs> drum out. <laughs> I think it's important for people to 
not expect that sex will only happen in long-term relationships where pe both people are like a four or a five to give those times when you might be a three or a two or even sometimes a one to give those times a shot because very often what happens is what you just described, this responsive desire in us kicks in when we're not really whoring it to begin with, but because we start engaging in something sexual, our body gets aroused, gets like physically aroused, and then our brain kind of catches on and says, ooh, that feels good. Yeah, we want more of that. Yes, yes, I want this. Even though in the beginning, you're kind of like, no, I'm not really feeling it. So give, give responsive desire a chance, especially in long-term relationships. Yeah. And I talk about this, I actually talk about a lot of these things in my new course that just launched that is out for people who are interested in learning more about themselves, their personality, and how their personality affects their relationship choices and whether monogamy or open relationships or don't ask, don't tell or monogamish or whatever, those different types of relationships that are on offer that are possible for us how and why our personality kind of predisposes us to like and thrive more in some of them and struggle with others. Thankfully, this is in horoscopes for sex. <laughs> it's not horoscopes, no. Wait, no, it's, it's, please don't tell me this is My Myers-Briggs for sex. No, <laughs> it's not Myers-Briggs. I'm INTJ, which means I can deep throat. <laughs> I love it. Actually, can we create a Myers-Briggs for sex? I think we could get rich off this. I think we could create a meme off of it, at least. We could just, like, take the chart and be like, this one, uh, neurotic way into it. Just, like, take an entire thing and just, we could we could throw it onto there. We could do it. <laughs> I go through 11 different personality traits, like novelty-seeking, and assertiveness, jealousy, sexual risk-taking, things like emotional regulation, attachment patterns, social stigma resilience, ease of arousability, how easily we get infatuated, and how well we regulate our emotions. There is some research evidence for all of them that can lead us in different directions as far as relationships go. And at the end, you'll get something that says clingy, but really into anal. <laughs> I'm reading my diary again. <laughs> my therapist notes. <laughs> Someone has to review them. Right? Clingy, but very into anal. Mm-hmm. That describes someone. <laughs> oh, for sure. I think that describes a lot of someone's. Do you have stats? I do have stats. Would you like some stats? Yes. Ma'am, we're all about the numbers on this show. <laughs> this is a professional operation that reviews pornography. It's from the same study that I was mentioning. Oh, what percentage of people probably like are uh, interested in anal versus have actually done it? <gasps> yeah, would you like oh my God. Would you like that data? Then, what do you think? I'm going to be wrong. Like We're both going to be wrong. I think I read this in Cosmo, so it's definitely wrong. Let's just go with <laughs> Let's go with about a third of people have done it. I'm just going to go with a third of men and a third of women and let's see what happens. But wait, how many have fantasized about it? Fantasized, I'm going to go with uh, two thirds of men and 20% of women. Two thirds and 20%. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So I think doing the anal, um, I'm going to say 8%. 8%. Okay. I'm thinking seven, but I'm going to push it to eight. <laughs> and uh, men doing anal, um, I'm going to say 12%. Or actually, yeah, 12. I'm, I'm confident wow. about that. So let's start with doing the anal versus fantasizing. 
You definitely underestimated Alice this time around, and Cybabe is closer. So 37% of women report lifetime receiving anal sex lifetime. Yeah, this was like over the course of a lifetime, trying it once. Yeah. Like some people never are like, not, not, that was good enough. Are we (laughs) counting a finger though, or or just like the full dick? I think the dick. Says received anal sex. So whatever that meant to people. There are a lot fewer people who have done it in the past month. That's only 4% of women. And in the past year is 12%, but over the lifetime is 37. And for men, lifetime is 43%. So not too far off, only a little bit more. Now, they did ask if men received anal, and 10% of men reported receiving anal. Some of those, probably about 2 or 3%, are probably gay and bisexual men. So I am proud of that 9 to 8%. Good for you. Well, <laughs> more gentlemen. men need to be open about it. Just saying, you've got a prostate, men. You have an advantage on us for sexual pleasure, a disadvantage for possibly another thing to get cancer on. But I'm saying at least (sighs) use it for the sexual pleasure while you can. Jesus would not have put it in the butt if he didn't want you to use it. (laughs) Jesus put that there for you. For you. (laughs) Don't. It's masculine to use a thing that only men have, right? Getting things shoved in your butt is hence masculine, gentlemen. Exactly. It's gay not to stimulate the prostate. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love you, too. Only vaginal sex is gay. That's what Roosh V says. (laughs) I have a friend who says if you who has a prostate himself and he says if you have a prostate and you're not using it for pleasure, you're absolutely missing out. And I have tried to convey that to all of my male partners. And many of them, as I said, I've popped a lot of those cherries. A lot of them have been excited and interested. And actually, a lot of the time, the feedback that I've gotten from men has been, you're the first woman who's shown interest in that. Usually I feel uncomfortable expressing that desire because women don't are not open to that. They think of it as gay. So this really isn't just like a male problem that they think it's gay or whatever. The women also often think is gay. So I think we all need to shift our understanding of this practice as something that has nothing to do with sexual orientation and has everything to do with, does this thing feel good? And if it does, then do it. Okay. So first off, ladies, fucking clip your nails and put some lube on it and stick it in with consent, but do it with your pinky, stick it in his butt. You're welcome. Chat it out first, you know, just. And use lots of lube. Hell, thank you. Are you ready for the percentage of men and women who find anal sex appealing? Yes. Uh, yes. 14% of women. I said 20, so at least I I was right that it was fewer than had ever done it. So wait, there's 30% have done it. 37% had done it. And 14% like it. Oh. So 20% of those who've done it, more than 20, 23%, don't find it appealing. Interesting. Yeah. They ventured out into the unknown and came back. What percent of men do you think find anal sex appealing? I said two-thirds. You said two-thirds, right? I'm going to say 60%. You said 60. 35. Really? Holy shit. 35. I'm going to throw it out there to the guys that are like, I don't, I'm not, it's, I feel like it's always comes down to 
poop is there. And it, that's always the reason. Like For a lot of people it is, yeah. And I feel like the listeners of this podcast know by now that there is a way around that. But if you have, if you're brand new to here, there's this thing called an enema that makes there not be poop on your dick. So I'm just saying there are ways around this. Often you don't even need that. Often you don't even need that. Just kind of wash up a little bit and make sure that you've gone to the bathroom before and that you Oh, I'm a white glover. Oh, are you? (laughs) There will be no Santorum uh, as a result of of my anal sex. Nope, 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 (laughs) nope. We're a Santorum free zone here. Okay, okay. We're going until it's clean. If you're one of those people, then enemas are your best friend. If you're a little more relaxed about it, shit happens quite literally when you're having anal sex every now and then. So yeah, it's not the worst. Usually, I think people often fear the poopocalypse. Yes. And the poopocalypse does not happen very often. I think they think they're going to knock on the back door and like the intestines are going to be like, ah, we have something waiting for it. That's not how, that's not how butts work. Yeah. You're, you'll be fine. That's not how butts work. Yeah. No. Oh, that only happens when you have coffee in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> right. So have your coffee in the morning and then later in the day. Then the butt Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and actually I believe there's a hormone that specifically is triggered in like 40 or 60% of people that makes them poop after they consume coffee. It did it for everyone, really. It's a. I don't remember when I read this, but it's not the caffeine in coffee because decaf coffee does it too. Does the same, yeah. I've yeah. That. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's amazing. So whatever I it is, to decaf recently a few months ago, and same thing. It's. I'm just saying, like, it's. I could find out tomorrow. Coffee causes like. There's always an alternative headline that it's causing or fixing cancer. Whatever. I could find it tomorrow. It's definitively giving me a disease. I'll be like, no, no, no. The poops are worth it. Those are <laughs> those are some good poops, man. Like life is only so short or only so long, and I cannot spend it on bad poops. So. so- I'm curious about the decaf because caffeine, supposedly, it uh, from what I'm reading, it stimulates the urge to poop because several studies have shown it activates contractions in your colon and intestinal muscles. Like I said, it's been a while uh, hmm. since I've read this, but I, I the post-coffee poop sensation happened to, like I said. Oh, yeah, yeah. Decaf, actually, you're right, also stimulates the urge to poop. This indicates other compounds or factors are responsible. Strange, huh? yeah. And I'm trying to figure out what percentage. (laughs) Um, I definitely see like in one study, 29% of participants definitely said, yeah, have the urge to poop after having coffee. I thought it was more. Hmm. I'm curious. I think it was more. 53% of women and 19% of men in a very small study. So let's just call it 30 to 40% of people. (laughs) Hmm. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Keep drinking your coffee. The poops are worth it. Zana, where can our listeners find you, your courses, and more of you? Yes, drjana.com. Jana, D- Jesus. <laughs> D-R-Z-H-A-N-A.com, drjana.com. That's where you can find Uncensored and how to get to Uncensored. Those are the online conversations. That's where you can find the Open Smarter online course. And if people want to work with me privately, I do private consulting as well especially for the sexually adventurous that's my that's my specialty given my own my own background personal and professional so yeah drjana.com and on instagram and on twitter same drjana i have a lot of conversations with people on on instagram about a lot of these things 
Nice. And Yvette, where can our listeners find you? Y'all can find me at the SciBabe on Twitter and Instagram over at SciBabe.com and of course at Facebook.com slash SciBabe where I have bi-weekly uh, live streams where I try to explain uh, life, the pandemic, uh, and I occasionally swear, possibly, probably. Anyways, Alice, where can our listeners find you and all things the podcast? You guys can find all things me at Rational Blonde on Twitter. I have an Instagram, but it's very rare I post there. <laughs> Uh, and we are on the podcast all over the place. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Patreon. So Patreons, by the way, you get the full video version of this conversation and you get to see our amazingly shocked faces at times. But <laughs> of course, follow us at TGM Podcast or, uh, you know, find us online at twogirlswomike.com. Leave us a review. Uh, we always love seeing those. And of course, we love subscribers to our Patreon and you guys can find that again uh, patreon.com slash two girls on mic or two girls on mic.com hit the support button but you can also listen to us again next week listen to us next week there will be more notes from not the apocalypse anymore it's a good it'll time. be porn <laughs> it'll be porn there's porn come hang out with us it's, it's porn and dick jokes we love you guys we'll see you next week bye bye, bye. bye.